Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. What I genuinely believe is that the market for financial assets and the financial environment that we have known for the last 40 or 50 years, I think is going to be fundamentally different going forward. On WealthTrack, former global mutual fund star, now private investor Bill Wilby on the problem with treasuries and why financials are uninvestable. Funding provided by Clearbridge Investments, First Eagle Investments, Royce Investment Partners, Baird, Matthews Asia, Strategus Asset Management, and Women Investing in Security and Education. Hello and welcome to this edition of WealthTrack. I'm Consuelo Mack. No one knows more about the banking system than Jamie Dimon, chairman and chief executive officer of J.P. Morgan Chase. He is considered to be the best financial executive in the country, leading the nation's largest and strongest bank. In his most recent annual letter, always worth a read, Dimon weighed in on the recent turmoil in the banking system, both here and abroad. Among his major points, the recent failures of Silicon Valley Bank in the United States and Credit Suisse in Europe and the related stress in the banking system underscore that simply satisfying regulatory requirement is not sufficient. Risks are abundant, and managing those risks requires constant and vigilant scrutiny as the world evolves. Regarding the current disruption in the U.S. banking system, most of the risks were hiding in plain sight. Interest rate exposure, the fair value of held-to-maturity portfolios, and the amount of SVB's uninsured deposits were always known. The unknown risk was that SVB's over 35,000 corporate clients and activity within them were controlled by a small number of venture capital companies and moved their deposits in lockstep. It is unlikely that any recent change in regulatory requirement would have made a difference in what followed. Instead, the rapid rise of interest rates placed heightened focus on the potential for rapid deterioration of the fair value of held-to-maturity portfolios. And in this case, the lack of stickiness of certain uninsured deposits. Ironically, banks were incented to own very safe government securities because they were considered highly liquid by regulators and carried very low capital requirements. Even worse, the stress testing based on the scenario devised by the Federal Reserve Board, the Fed, never incorporated interest rates at higher levels. And he added, as I write this letter, the current crisis is not yet over, and even when it is behind us, there will be repercussions from it for years to come. Well, there is a lot to unpack in Diamond's comments, which is why we asked this week's guest to join us. He is great investor Bill Wilby, who has appeared with us exclusively since his retirement from professional money management over a decade ago. Now an active private investor, Wilby was the portfolio manager of the award-winning Oppenheimer Global Fund, which was ranked number one in its category for the 12 years he ran it. Wilby is a graduate of West Point. He recently stepped down from the committee running the school's endowment. He has a PhD in international monetary economics and has held various international finance and investment positions at top financial institutions, including the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago. 
will be retired at the market's peak in 2007. Talk about timing, because he was concerned about the risks in the financial system. I asked him how abundant the risks in the financial system are now. Consuela, they're, they're not only abundant, but I think they're, they're very different. If you look at what happened to Silicon Valley Bank, it didn't have a problem in its loan portfolio. It didn't have a problem on its trading desk. It had a problem in its treasury portfolio. Treasuries are supposed to be the risk-free asset. In fact, under the Bank for International Settlement Standards, the BIS standards, treasuries have a zero risk weighting. So there's a, a big incentive for banks to own treasuries. Uh, the, the thing is, is that banks have been stuffed with treasuries over the last several years because the government has issued a mountain of them in the wake of the pandemic. And the Fed has bought those treasuries and the Fed has some, you know, five or six trillion in treasuries on its balance sheet and is trying to unwind the size of its balance sheet. So what is it doing? It is selling those treasuries to the banking system. And so you're seeing a higher than normal share of treasuries in bank portfolios, uh, upwards of 20% in some cases. And when you have big price movements that happen because of the sharp rise in Federal Reserve interest rates, uh, it moves those treasuries around with the market. And now we live in a world where everything is out in the open. Someone can pick up their iPhone and, and not only get the information about what might be happening to Silicon Valley Bank's portfolios, but if they have the slightest whim of concern, they can hit a button on their phone and transfer assets out. And that's what happened to Silicon Valley Bank. It had a lot of treasuries. There was there were more long treasuries than short treasuries. And long treasuries are the ones that get hurt by a rise in interest rates. They went down in value. I was just kind of blown away by the fact that the that in the Fed's risk scenarios, according to Jamie Dimon's letter, that uh, that the Fed had not figured in a scenario of higher interest rates. I mean, this is a problem. It's not just a problem, Consuelo, that they are incented to hold treasuries, but it's also the fact that the government has issued an avalanche of treasuries in the last three years through the combination of COVID, stimulus packages. So the banking system is getting filled up with treasuries instead of making community loans to help mom and pop in Peoria. And the government has stepped in to make sure that the treasuries, which represent collateral for the banks, don't lose their value. So the, the government is basically guaranteed that these treasuries, which, you know, might be worth 60 cents on the dollar, are actually worth par, 100 cents on the dollar. I don't know what this does to inflation. I don't know what this does to the financial system. Uh, the source of this problem is excessive debt issuance, both in the public sector and the private sector, and the monetization, that is, the printing of money to finance that debt. What we're doing is doing more of it to solve the problem. In other words, our solutions are the problem. And therefore, we're making the problem worse longer term. 
The short term, yes, maybe you get a little stimulus out of it, but every time we take that short term step, we are making the long term problem worse. S Stanley Druckenmiller had a wonderful term that uh, it was a jelly donut uh, monetary policy that we have. We stimulate because it tastes so good, it feels so good in the short term. But in the long term, if you eat jelly donuts every day, it's, it's not good for your health. And that's what's happening with American monetary and fiscal policy. Uh, there, there's this myth out there that we have these two twin levers and all we have to do is step on the gas on fiscal and either restrain or step on the gas with monetary and we solve all of our recessionary problems. The problem is, politically, we're never willing to restrain during good times, but we're always willing to stimulate in bad times. And what that means is, over the course of 50 or 60 years, we've built up an enormous debt problem that is weighing down our ability to grow right now and is causing the Fed to do really outlandish things to try to get growth back. But when, in fact, the source of the problem is exactly what they're doing in Washington. It's the arsonists accusing the building occupants. What does this do to your assessment of risk in the financial markets? The recession risk is clearly high. Uh, remember, if you go back to 2008, it took a long time to play out. Uh, the Bear Stearns hedge funds collapsed in the spring of 07. Uh, Bear Stearns itself didn't fail until March of 08, okay, mm -hmm. al al almost a year later. And Lehman Brothers didn't go down until September of 08. Just because Silicon Valley Bank had a problem here doesn't mean that these problems are over. They're going to be rolling through our system for the next year or two. Because of the run on Silicon Valley Bank, because of everything that's happened, the willingness of banks to extend credit is very, very low right now. And it's taken another step down. So, so that's another tightening another that's happening. Effective, another effective tightening, just right. like the, the ultimate tightening was when you had the big failures of Lehman Brothers and the, the whole credit system shut down. The, the two excesses are in the government credit markets and in the private equity credit markets. Pension funds, for instance, have about, I don't know, 25 up to 30% of their assets in private equity. So in fact, it could affect the pension system, right? Ab absolutely affect the pension system. Yep. Most pensions and endowments are very heavily weighted in, in private equity. And so if there's a hiccup in private equity, it's going to roll through, you know, the individual's pension funds uh, and, and add to the retirement woes that we already have. It's a difficult investment environment because basically we've had a, a massive glut of capital produced by government in Washington and the, the, both the monetary and the fiscal authorities. And, and we've glutted every asset class. Uh, there's no safe haven. Cash gives you nothing, and and we're well, saying cash gives it, you something now. It gives you, yeah, you know, four, it, it, four to five percent. It still gives you a negative after-tax inflation-adjusted yield. True. 
it's, uh, it, <laughs> yes. it's, we look because interest rates are up to, oh my God, four or four and a half percent. Well, the inflation's running at six. Okay. But even if the inflation is underlying, let's say at three, that's one takeaway taxes from that and you're left with zero. So there's very little return in cash. Right. Uh, so again, people have been pushed out on the risk spectrum. Is it just longer treasuries that we shouldn't we should not consider to be a risk-free asset, and and is there any replacement? Well, there's 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 no replacement for them. There isn't, uh, Consuela. I, yeah. I'm not a Bitcoin fan. I'm uh, I'm not a gold fan. What I genuinely believe is that the market for financial assets and the financial environment that we have known for the last forty or fifty years. I think it's going to be fundamentally different going forward. If you so think a about paradigm it, shift, right? It's from a paradigm shift. Of yes. everything is the way you yes. put it to what? So I think we may be moving towards a blue collar economy, which would be wonderful for the U.S. in some ways. Uh, if you look at where the stimulus is, it's in infrastructure spending. We have some environmental spending. There's a, there's onshoring taking place as companies around the world go back to their home markets. Mm -hmm. So there's more plant building taking place. The, the engineering and construction area is, I think, a reasonable place to, to invest right now. It's not cyclical. The government's behind it. So it's a good place to hide. I mean, I own stocks like Acom, Jacobs Engineering, uh, Floor. All of these are big, heavy-duty engineering con construction companies that are involved with building everything from environmental uh, projects to, you know, uh, e energy facilities uh, or roads and highways and bridges. And so I think that's a reasonable area to invest. And I think that's one of the reasons why the economy is still surprisingly strong, given what the Fed has done to interest rates. What's happening is the financial economy is in in trouble right now, and perhaps the tech economy. Although I'm with what's happening with the artificial intelligence revolution, I'm I'm more sanguine about the tech area than I am about the uh, financial services area. Why do you consider financial stocks to be uninvestable, and and in which in what kind of financial stocks? If you take banking. It's the classic example of a perfectly competitive industry. There's no product differentiation. Every bank virtually does the same thing. They take deposits and make loans and make a, make a profit on the spread. And there's 14,000 of them. In, a, in addition to that, bankers pay themselves a lot of money and don't do a lot for shareholders. They, you know, they do try to pay the occasional dividends. Dividend. But, uh, and they do share buybacks, and they've been better about that recently but they also pay themselves very well. And the government has virtually merged with the financial sector in the last uh, five years. Mm -hmm. So you now have the government's unpredictability to worry about as a shareholder. So I have no interest in it. It's not something that I can figure out. There are too many unknown variables in here. And I feel like as a, as a minority investor in a financial institution, I am totally at the end of the food chain. 
one of the wonderful things about having you on, aside from the fact uh, that you know so much, you've got such great perspective, is that you're, like m uh, many of our uh, viewers who are retirees, you're running your retirement portfolio. So the, the, the kinds of companies that you are investing in, and, and you mentioned some um, the, of the infrastructure companies like uh, you know, Jacob Solutions and, and Floor right. is another one. First of all, it's a difficult area to invest in. It's not an area that I've spent much of my career investing in. Again, because you've got the uncertainty of government contracts, uh, uh, you know, fixed price uh, uh, contracts where they, the, the issue is the company itself has a difficult time trying to control the costs, so the profit margins are not that predictable. But I think these are the businesses of you know construction and engineering and engineering design and solutions for governments uh, in the infrastructure environmental area energy area all this sort of thing are uh, i think it has a wind at its its back mm -hmm. and so right. i'm willing to put a diversified portfolio of those stocks in there i think in general my portfolio is probably more balanced now than it's been in years because I don't have strong conviction about what's coming out the other end of this mess we've found ourselves in. And balanced between, what do you mean by balanced? Balanced between growth and value, or some of these, you know, engineering construction, there's some value stocks in there. Mm -hmm. I own, for example, Boeing is my travel and leisure play, but it's a turnaround situation. These are not the kind of stocks I normally invest right. in. But the risk out there is if we have a severe recession, these are cyclical stocks and they will get hurt. So I don't have huge positions in any of these companies. I have, I, I still own some of the big growth companies like Microsoft and Google. You consider those also to be artificial intelligence plays yeah, well, as well, well they right? Yes, they both benefit. I mean, Microsoft bought OpenAI and it's got ChatGPT, which is what everybody's raving about right now. Google actually has two uh, AI investments in its Google Ventures uh, portfolio. And then also in the semiconductor space, artificial intelligence requires such massive amounts of data and, then, and, and complexity of calculation and all of this is going to depend on chips that are fast enough and can handle complex calculations well enough. One of my favorite stocks in that area is the Dutch company, uh, ASML, which is, it basically has a global monopoly. This is like buying OPEC in one company. Semiconductors are the oil of the future. And ASML and applied materials in some of the Western companies, just, they're the only games in town. Well, you also own some traditional energy companies like, you know, Exxon and, uh, and LNG, liquid natural gas companies. First of all, I, I think if you do the math, and there are several professors around the world that have done the math and looked at what the material needs will be for the green energy transition, you know from the pure math of it that the green energy transition is impossible on current technology. Mm -hmm. Oil is going to be around. Oil is, is going to be there and it's probably going to continue to grow 
The other thing that's very interesting about oil, when is if you look at it from a total efficiency basis, that is energy in versus energy out. What is the total energy cost of producing energy? Carbon is still the most efficient energy source there is. Hmm. And these companies have gone, have turned shareholder friendly. They've stopped massively investing in in, in uh, capacity and reserves because of their fear over the environmental pushback. Right. And so supply has been shrinking while demand, in my view, is going to continue to grow for, for, for uh, part particularly clean energy, you know, some of the gas solutions and things like that. That's one of the reasons I own LNG, the symbols LNG for Chenier Energy, which is the, will be the supplier of U.S. natural gas to Europe. What does your personal portfolio look like as far as its mix between stocks and bonds and cash or whatever? I'm about 70% in equities, which is very low for me. I, uh, I've always had a bias towards stocks. So I'm about 30% and it's largely in cash. For you, that's relatively conservative. It's not as conservative as you were during the global financial crisis. What, what I think when you were 50-50, 50, 50, 50 like stocks and 50% cash. That's right. I was 50-50 in, in 07 going into the crisis. And I'm 70-30 yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm right now. And again, because I'm, I, I don't have the conviction on how we get out of this right now. Any uh, advice for individual investors? And again, many of our viewers are retirees as well. There's always going to be great businesses. That's why I have 30% cash, because I do expect that over the next couple of years, we're going to see some sharp downdrafts. And those are the opportunities to buy the great companies that are always too expensive the one investment for a long-term diversified portfolio. My favorite stock right now is uh, is probably ASML, the Dutch uh, semiconductor equipment company. It's not unrecognized, however. Uh, ASML has a virtual monopoly in semiconductor capital equipment for what's called extreme ultraviolet technology, which is the only technology that will get you down to the two or three nanometer level in semiconductor chips. And given the, the war over the control of semiconductor technology that I feel, believe is going to be happening over the next 20 years or so, I think it's sitting in an incredible position. And uh, so, but it's expensive now. That's why if you have a nice dollop of cash in your portfolio, if we get a generalized market downdraft, those are the opportunities to pick up a company like ASML at, at great prices. Because when you have a big generalized market downdraft, the market makes no distinction and everything gets sold off because it's a genuine panic. How do you keep your cool or do you keep your cool in retirement uh, when in periods of, of market stress? Well, Consuela, when I was... Uh, at Oppenheimer Funds, and I had a number of mutual fund managers reporting to me. I used to tell every manager that I want you to be a lazy investor. And they would always do a double take. And what do you mean by that? Because, you know, they're used to these are all type A folks that want to strive and always trying to get the latest little kernel of information. 
And I said, yeah, I want you to do your homework. I want you to dig deep and think, but I, I don't want you to try to do too much with your portfolio. Remember the Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm. If you throw a reasonably balanced, diversified portfolio together, it's gonna do okay in all likelihood, unless you start screwing it up. And so you've gotta be really careful not to screw up your portfolio. And during the most difficult time, during the big sell-offs, that's when your risk of screwing up a good portfolio is highest. So if you keep that in the back of your mind, it helps you keep your cool a little bit as you're going through that. I mean, sometimes I'd be in the middle, of, I can remember during the pandemic, I wasn't watching the market every day. I was kind of aware it was plummeting and I was losing lots of money every single day, but I just didn't pay a whole lot of attention to it at that time. Bill Wilby, thank you so much for joining us on WealthTrack and sharing your just invaluable perspective. I, we really appreciate it. Thank you, Consuelo. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At the close of every wealth track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. Recent financial turbulence remind us that there are risks inherent in any financial system. They always get revealed in periods of financial stress, and they remind us of some old-fashioned common-sense rules of behavior. This week's action point is diversify your short-term financial holdings. Make sure cash deposits are covered by FDIC insurance. The legal limits are still $250,000 per account per institution, although the government seems to be bending those rules for now. Own some safe liquid assets like treasury bills. You can buy them commission-free from the treasury at treasurydirect.gov. Own some short-term inflation-protected securities. You can buy short-term U.S. Treasury inflation-protected securities or tips through a broker. The ones available at treasurydirect.gov started a maturity of five years. There are short-term inflation-protected fund options. Morningstar's Christine Benz recently recommended Vanguard Short-Term Inflation-Protected Securities Fund. The low interest rate, easy money climate of the last decade plus lulled many investors into a false sense of security. That era is over. It's time to get back to the basics of sound, conservative financial practices. Well, next week in our second interview with influential strategist and Fed analyst Ed Yardeni, he gives us his take on the Fed's financial health. Does the investment advice, don't fight the Fed, still work? In this week's extra feature, Bill Wilby shares a book recommendation that's been an eye-opener for him. Please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. Thank you for watching. Have a spectacular weekend and make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one.